1: You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Thanks for checking in on the Phrenesis podcast. Today, I have Brigadier General. Dr. Tom Kolditz, and he is the founding director of the Ann and John Doerr Institute for New Leaders at Rice University, the most comprehensive evidence-based university-wide leader development program in the world. The Doerr Institute was recognized in 2019 as the top university leader development program by the Association of Leadership Educators. And prior to Rice, he taught as a professor in the practice of leadership and management, and was the director of the Leadership Development Program at the Yale School of Management. A retired Brigadier General, Tom led the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point for 12 years. In that role, he was responsible for West Point's teaching, research, and outreach activities in management, leader development science, psychology, and sociology, and was titled Professor Emeritus after retirement. A highly experienced global leader, General Kolditz has more than 35 years in leadership roles on four continents. His career has focused on either leading organizations himself or studying leadership and leadership policy across sectors. In 2017, he was honored with the prestigious Warren Bennis Award for Excellence in Leadership, an honor also bestowed on Doris Kearns Goodwin, Howard Schultz, Tom Peters, Benazir Bhutto. And in 2018, he was globally ranked in the number six in coaching by Global Gurus, an independent research and professional ranking organization. And in 2019, he was among eight global finalists in coaching and mentoring by Thinkers 50. If I'm not mistaken, we have some Marshall Goldsmith right there. He is a fellow in the American Psychological Association. He's a member of the Academy of Management. Professor Kolditz has presented leadership and content to more than 300 governmental, corporate, and social sector audiences worldwide, As a professor, he taught at Duke, Wellesley, Columbia, Yale, University of Missouri, Harvard. And you know what? He's worked with the CIA, the FBI, the DEA. He has been on Al Jazeera, ABC, NBC, MSNBC, NPR. He's been interviewed by the New York Times. And you know what? He holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and sociology from Vanderbilt, beautiful campus, three master's degrees and a PhD in psychology from the University of Missouri. Sir, what gaps do we need to fill in? What else should listeners know about you? That is, that's just incredible. Thank you so
0: much for being here. Well, thanks. I really appreciate the introduction. When I introduce myself, what I try to stress is that I'm what I've referred to in the past as a soldier scholar mutt. (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I've I got my PhD in 1982 as a lieutenant in the Army. Huh. So I'm I'm academically aware and connected. And I've worked at universities West Point, Yale, Rice, Mizzou. I've also spent at at this point in time, you know, well over 30 years as the the principal responsible for an organization, whether it was a business-related organization, whether it was a military organization. And so I've got a lot of practical experience at failing at leadership. I mean, I you know leadership is like a constant stream of mistakes that you overcome. And uh, and so sometimes I sound like a professor because I'm referring to research, and other times I sound like a you know some old guy that
1: <laughs> has run a <laughs> lot
0: of organizations and made all of the dumb mistakes. I made all the easy mistakes, lowing fruit. That's that's kind of who I am.
1: Tom, what? brought you to this topic of leadership? I mean, I, I see some roots potentially in the sociology and the psychology. What is it about this topic that has always kind of fascinated you? What drew you to the topic of leadership?
0: I was exposed to it at a very young age by my parents who were leaders in the small town. I grew up in a town of 1800 people in Southern Illinois. They were Leaders. My dad was on the school board. My mother was a well-known nurse who took care of everybody in the town. And so it was just kind of assumed that my brother and I, I have one one brother, uh, would would be leaders. And I can remember when I was five or six years old, the first grade teacher pulling me aside when the class was at recess and telling me, "Hey Tommy, I w- I want you to go out there and I want you to get the kids." And make sure that they all come back in here. But you can't boss them around. You just have to, you just have to talk to them and and get them to come back in. You know, I, to, at the time it made perfect sense to me because she played bridge with my parents. <laughs> I mean, this is a small town; everybody knows everybody. Yeah. But looking back on it, what I realized was happening was she was teaching me to lead, and she didn't do that for everyone in the class. She just did it for a few of us. Hmm. You know, then as I progressed through middle school and high school, there were opportunities to lead uh, on athletic teams and, you know, in other organizations. I was very interested in, in psychology, but I, I needed a scholarship to go to a school like Vanderbilt. And so I got an ROTC scholarship. Ah. After I graduated, I went straight to grad school in psychology. I, I really was fascinated by psychology and sort of the, influence that psychology has on on behavior. And I thought the army would make me an army psychologist, a research psychologist. What they did was they said, well, thank you. We don't need any of those right now. We need artillerymen. So they made me a cannoneer, uh, an artillery officer. And it was actually a lot of fun because I got to shoot big guns. (laughs) And You would think that shooting big guns would be you know, just sort of this rambunctious thing. It's actually a lot of math because huh. you have to do ballistic solutions. You, you know, you have to understand principles of physics Yes. and how to make this 115 pound projectile land in the right place, seven miles away. I was exposed to the need to lead people in the army. And the first person I reported to in the army was actually a West Point graduate who had played basketball for Mike Shishchevsky when coach K was the the basketball coach at West Point is very focused on leadership and he started teaching me about leadership you know about how you actually lead soldiers and I got hooked yeah I really did so my whole career because I had a PhD was back and forth between leading soldiers in in combat type units or having more Sophisticated kind of cerebral jobs in the Pentagon or in the Center for Army Leadership or places uh, like that. So it was back and forth between doing it and thinking about it, doing it and writing policies about it, doing it and and so I'm a, I, I've always been sort of a mixture of doer and thinker, yeah. and that's that's kind of how I got to all of this, Tom.
1: Talk about the benefits of having that perspective. How do you make sense of that in your own mind? Because that's an incredible strength doing and studying and writing and doing. I mean, it, it just brings such a depth and breadth to your work.
0: Yeah. You know, well, John Doerr, who I now know well, and who really inspires me, has this saying that ideas are easy and execution is everything and in academe in particular, but in America in general, we are in love with ideas. But, you know, the max effective range of a leadership speech is zero meters. I mean, it it does not, it, does, it generally does not change a person. And there are a number of things that simply don't have sufficient influence to change people. And you learn that when you practice, you know. When you do it. And there are other academic reasons that have popped up. You know, we've done some research at Rice. And, and one of the things we discovered is that the correlation between how well students do in leader development programming and how well they do academically, their grade point average, wow. the correlation is zero. Hmm. Zero. Wow. And that's because it's a completely independent set of skills and practice. Leadership is developed through practice. It's not developed because you figure out some factoid about leadership. You have to go do it. And the best way to do it is with somebody who knows what they're doing, looking over your shoulder like anything else.
1: Yes. It probably wouldn't have worked to be an artilleryman and just have talked about it and been in the classroom the whole time, right? You get out in the field, that's not going to be good.
0: (laughs) All right. And you know, it's, it's sort of the relationship between science and engineering. Hmm. It's good to study science, but science doesn't do anything. It's only when engineers take it and do something with it, or bioengineers, or a physician, or whoever. And so there's that aspect to leadership and leader development. The university faculty live and work in an individual performer culture. They don't work in a leadership-driven culture. Neither do students for the most part. Yes, that's what we have to overcome if we're going to change the way leaders have developed in higher ed.
1: Well, I want to get to that. I want to get to the book and I want to get to some of your perspectives on that because I think it's critical. But I want to take a a journey to West Point for a couple moments. So I, I just finished an article. This is probably a couple of weeks ago, right now, but it made me think of you and this discussion. It was, I think, the author was Lewis, and it was really about cadets and their constructive developmental theory, Robert Keegan's work, and kind of where the cadets the cadets were in their development. And it was just a fascinating article. As you reflect on your experience at West Point and doing the work of leader development, what are some they could be hallmarks they could just be reflections but as you think about that work in that context what are some things that stand out for you in developing leaders
0: yeah well you know we were we were talking about Keegan's work at West Point beginning in the late 1990s
1: yes i mean uh, it's an old article
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and it was really it was really great to intellectualize in that way but if you actually read Keegan as it turns out getting from one stage to another in the short four-year time of West Point is pretty difficult to really do. The biggest thing I learned at West Point, and I was chairman of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership, so I had all the leadership academic courses and, and that sort of thing, was that cadets were not learning to lead from the courses that my faculty were teaching. What they were learning was that leadership is important enough that we would teach required classes on. But that's not how they learned to lead. The way they learned to lead is they would be part of a team that was charged with running a land navigation course and being in charge of the safety of it and transportation and, you know, all of the moving parts. And they were coached through that by a very special group of Army officers that were picked from the field to come to West Point and be what we referred to as tactical officers. And that role was so important that we developed a program with Columbia, with the Teachers College, to give those officers a 36 credit hour master's degree in organizational psychology and leadership. Wow. And turn them into into coaches. So there were 80 of them. Wow. In a student body of only about 4,000. I realized at, at that point in time that the secret to leader development was to take people who are already passionate about something or interested in something related to leadership or operations or business or what have you and then coach them through that yeah making them better leaders as, as they go look it's how we make our plumbers and our electricians you know they're apprenticed essentially yep and so this fundamental principle of of showing the people what the, the way I took with me to the Yale School of Management. Only instead of having these army officers, I had to use professional leadership coaches. Yes. But it showed me that there is no substitute for a professional coach, not a mentor, you know, not an untrained person, but someone who has been trained to develop leaders. So it was like this epiphany that someone who's educated and trained and experienced something is better than someone who isn't. (laughs) (laughs) But look, look, I'll tell you, if you, if you look across, whether it's universities or business, you find all kinds of people who are not educated or trained, or even in some ways experienced at it, who are giving speeches and Ted talks and, you know, all kinds of things that communicate some leadership ideas, but there's no practice component to it. Yeah. And so it's just, they're just selling it, you know, they're just selling the speech or whatever.
1: Well, Uh, it's interesting, Tom, when you mentioned that you were an ROTC, I posted a paper to, to the discussion that we're having and, in that, we do a little case study on ROTC. We interviewed some of the leaders of that program to just look at how they're approaching the work, and you know, baked into that whole experience. And it, it's not professional coaches, so that's not where I'm going. But at least there's some level of mentorship and guidance that it's a, that's occurring from the senior level cadets, from the other individuals, the, the senior seniors or juniors who can at least model. Coach, they can, they can provide feedback to some of the younger cadets. And there's that system that's in place that perpetuates itself. It's hard to replicate at times outside of outside of the military, but it sounds like in many ways, that's been a hallmark of your work, is in some ways replicating. Now we're gonna get them a professional coach, an ICF certified coach who knows what they're doing. And we're gonna provide some professional opportunities to be coached, actively coached by a professional to help facilitate that development and that growth. And you were doing that, it sounds like, at West Point, sounds like at Yale, and then you get to Door, you get to Rice. And as I understand it, you helped build this from the ground up. And I know that that's a core piece of your work there right now. Maybe we transition into that story What brought you to Rice and what's been built so far and where are we headed?
0: Yeah, so Ann and John Doerr are both Rice graduates. And John is, of course, a famous venture capitalist. He put the initial money under Google, under Amazon, under Netflix, uh, just, (laughs) you know, a ton of... of Wouldn't that be fun to say? (laughs) Yeah. Well, he's he's built about 250 companies. Yeah. Oh, Wow. uh, And he felt like he got a great education from Rice, but terrible preparation in terms of leadership skills and abilities, which he learned through the School of Hard Knocks. And luckily, he survived. So he and his wife decided they wanted to build a a significant infrastructure at Rice that would bring leadership development opportunities to every student in the school that wanted it. I was teaching at Yale at the time. And so a headhunter came and visited me. And he said, look, you know, we want you to go down to Rice and and build this thing. And it was a terrific offer. You know, i worked directly for the provost. I don't have to be under a dean or anything like that. And I get so little supervision that I was just had unlimited opportunity. They gave Rice what would at the time was the biggest donation ever, 50 million dollars. You know, you give a guy fifty million dollars and you don't supervise him, and stuff starts happening and, <laughs> and so you know i was I was able to to do some things that other people hadn't. you know, and the the coaching thing is is big here. We probably coach thirty five percent of the students at Rice, graduate and undergraduate. Wow, um, probably seventy five percent of the MBAs. We've discovered that it costs less than half of classroom instruction. And what that means is if it costs half of something you're already doing, then it is a choice. Whereas people in the past have looked at something like that and they think, oh, that's that's so gold-plated. No, not really. It's just more efficient than teaching leadership classes and works better in the long haul because We coach students in the context of what they're already passionate about. So an engineering student gets coached in an engineering projects team. Yeah. A a cellist in the school of music gets coached in the context of a quartet or the orchestra. Wow. So we're not we're not creating what we refer to as contrived events for students, you know, ropes courses and things like that we coach students where they're already active and passionate and interacting with other students. That's why it works Yeah, because they have the investment from day one, rather than us inventing some sort of retreat for them to go on and trying to convince them that it's important.
1: I I mentioned before we started, I just ordered leadership reckoning this morning. I downloaded the free chapter that I'll put in the show notes, the link to that. Talk a little bit about, because I imagine some of your foundational thinking is in that text. So I'm looking forward to reading it, but how are you approaching leadership development, leader development in a different way? We've got this coaching hallmark and and, and major component of this experience. What other components are baked into the philosophy of how you're approaching the work?
0: We go with only four fundamental first principles. Hmm. The first is that universities have an obligation to develop students as leaders, we refer hmm. to it as a core function of universities. Second, we only use evidence-based techniques. Third, we only use professional leader developers. We don't use professors, mentors, peer coaches, anything like that. And then fourth, we measure outcomes. And if something doesn't produce a measurable outcome in students' capacity to lead, we kill it. Hmm. And if it does, we fund it. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. You know, very simple. And so, yeah, I mean, coaching works very well. It's not as expensive as people think if they run a smart business model. I mean, if they pay executive rates, then. You know, goodbye, coaching (laughs) program. But you know, we make sure we pay our coaches a low end hourly rate, but we give them ten or fifteen clients a semester. Yes, and they use that as a base of business. Then they add their own executive clients. So it's we don't think that all universities should do exactly what the Doran Institute does or businesses, but we do think. That the first principles are quite fundamental. If the university is delivering something for their students, they shouldn't be using amateurs. They shouldn't be using peer students. I mean, what the hell is up with that? I mean, they would never do that <laughs> in physics or poetry or or anything else. But they've but they've become so used to bottom feeding, and that's really what. The first chapter of Leadership Reckoning is about, we excoriate universities for sloppy, uncoordinated, amateurish leader development uh, that that just doesn't match their excellence. And I'm not talking about obscure small schools. I'm talking about top 10 schools that are horrible at leader Mm -hmm. development Maybe it's happening in the business school and they've got an executive education program or something. But for your average undergraduate, it's amateur hour. We see that as flat wrong. And then after we we point that out, we spend the rest of the book giving away our ideas, giving away our business model, you know, basically saying, here's how we do it. You don't have to do it in the same way. But if you're going to have in your mission statement that you're developing the next generation of leaders, you need to treat it the same way you treat other things at the university, yes physics or poetry or anything else that you teach. And then we took that book just to show you how altruistic our orientation is. We sent three copies each to the presidents and provosts of the top 200 universities in the country. Wow. With a letter that basically said, I mean, I'm I'm obviously paraphrasing, but it said, you know, if you're like most universities, you're screwing this up and we want to help you, you know, get better. We've had a steady stream of university presidents. We had one university chancellor bring five of his presidents to the Doran Institute. Hmm. And it really has become a national movement around improvement in the development of college students as leaders. And it's going to have, over time, it's going to probably take 12 to 15 years. But over time, business is going to have a different product when it comes to college graduates. I mean, you know, we just we just saw the chief scientist for the president of the United States resign because he was a bad leader.
1: Mm.
0: We have to start developing scientists and educators and social sector leaders and others on how to lead from the very beginning or they fail at the application of their education that's where the universities are really failing they give people an education and they do next to nothing to help them apply it in a social context Hmm. whether it's business or government or social sector military wherever and we're going to change that. That's John Doerr's big idea. That's my big idea. We're going to change that.
1: Well, you'd mentioned the movement. You'd mentioned, you know, there's a consortium that people can be engaged in. Would you talk a little bit about that? Because we're we're opening it up to people beyond Rice, correct?
0: Oh, for sure. So we're currently leading a consortium. As of today, it has a 152 colleges and universities in it. They're all interested in having better leader development at their schools. We have a partnership now with the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and have created a classification that is, uh, in March, going to be available to all 5,200 colleges and universities in the country. It's an application that's a self-examination. So the schools put together a committee and they fill out the application to be classified in leadership for public purpose. Hmm. In other words, fulfilling this obligation by universities to create leaders for business and society. We're just running that system on behalf of Carnegie. It's Carnegie's classification, but we designed it and we, we administer it. And our, our goal is very simple. It's improvement. Yeah. That's what we want is improvement. And, in the process of putting together this committee and the university reviewing everything it does, whether it's for students or faculty or staff, is a true university level assessment. They'll change. They'll see that, you know, they're wasting money on a lot of things that just what we refer to as leadertainment. You know, it's just (laughs) things things that you give to students or others that, you know, oh, they love the retreat and the salmon was perfectly cooked, but it didn't change them.
1: Yeah. Are we moving the needle?
0: And you know what? Every university in this country has the capability and the talent to do well at this. It's just somehow the process has been relegated to bottom feeding, you know, just really low levels of sophistication and excellence. And so all we're really doing is saying, hey, y'all, come on. Yeah. You know, Come on, you know, if you're in the top 20 of universities in this country and your students are graduating with high school level leadership skills that they brought with them,
1: yep.
0: which, which is what we have found. Our research shows that if students don't go through a deliberate process of leader development, that getting the four year degree does not even incrementally change their capacity to lead. So we graduate 2.2 million students a year with college educations and high school level leadership skills. What a disaster for business. I mean, it's a strategic nightmare, but that's where we are. Over time, as we fix this, business is going to have a a lot more options in terms of young people who can not only figure out engineering solutions, but they can run a project team. They can lead other people in the conduct of their work.
1: Well, to your point, there's so many institutions that it's a it's a marketing slogan. It's it's a statement. Even college is a business where I'm situated. We looked at the top 25 and in the mission, vision, or values, it's, you know, we develop leaders. And, and at the undergraduate level, that might equate to a, a section in an organizational behavior course. At the graduate level, maybe it's a class most of the time, right? And to think that we're, quote unquote, developing leaders in that one segment of organizational behavior. (laughs) No, (laughs) we're not. (laughs) What if we approached accounting that way? You know, here's one segment on accounting. You're now an accountant. No, absolutely not. It's so fascinating, Tom, when you sit back and you kind of look at what we're doing what we say we want to do, what we say we're about. And then when you look at actually what's happening, I, I couldn't agree with you more. There's a better way. There's a different approach and we have to do better. I think we have to be graduating individuals who are going back to Robert Keegan, talk about being in over our heads. It's only accelerating. And are we developing and graduating students who are lifelong learners, who have that mindset of, of growth and development, who are used to having a coach and find value in that experience, and then maybe they'll do that on their own. Because that's ultimately, to your point, over four years, we're probably not going to move the, the needle on mental complexity as far as we would love to. But do we set them on that path?
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things we found is that the work that we do changes the way students think about themselves as leaders. Wow. We measure that as a psychological construct called leader identity. What happens when you have this shift in leader identity, students begin acting like their leaders, even if they're not. They seek out leader roles at more than 50% higher rates than their peers. And so they begin to teach themselves. Yeah. Because they've they changed the way they think about themselves as, as leaders. You know, most college students right now don't have a positive view of the term leader or leadership. They've seen too much bad leadership. So they, they don't necessarily identify with it. And step number one is changing that, getting them to realize that, you know, being a leader has a lot to do with how you treat other people. And, and that if you practice it, particularly if a coach is encouraging you in certain ways to practice it, you can see it come alive. You know, yeah. you can see yourself do it. As soon as that light bulb goes on in students' heads, they take off like airplanes. They, yep. they get better and better in measurable ways. But until that happens, if they sit there in the audience and they listen to some CEO ramble on about leadership they don't change your identity at all. That CEO is somebody they think they'll never be. So they walk out, they might remember it for a week, but after that, the inspiration goes away and there's nothing there. So, you know, for a top tier leadership speaker, you know, a school might pay $40,000, $50,000. Yeah. But with that money, you could coach 80 students and (laughs) and get a change, you know, get a change in every one of them. Yes. But a lot of, you know, a lot of this leadership stuff has politics and cronyism about it. I mean, it's just people get drawn into universities because they led somewhere else. They don't know how to develop students as leaders, but by golly, they're going to teach them a seminar in it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just about being honest, intellectually honest about what works and what doesn't work. And that's the bread and butter of a university. Yeah. They don't teach fake physics theories, <laughs> <laughs> but they're more than willing to have some leadership person come in and talk some wild snake oil, you know, about <laughs> what they think is, oh, trust. That's what's important. You know, come on.
1: Tom, I love it. What? So what are you thinking about? What puzzle has you perplexed right now when it comes to this task of developing leaders in this context? Is there anything, okay, we're not quite there yet. We haven't gotten our arms around this. Anything come to mind?
0: It's all about scale. Uh, We've got the Carnegie thing. That's that's great. Yep. We also have created a course in measurement that's aimed primarily at grad students in social science fields so that we can, over time at scale, populate the universities with people who know how to measure actual leadership outcomes, Hmm. you know, don't just throw up their hands and say, well, it's just, you just can't measure that, you know, that is untrue. And we want to eliminate that myth. But in order to really change an institutional array, like universities in the United States, we'll have to have a dozen initiatives at least. And so right now what's going on in the Doran Institute So we've got people working on like, what's the next strategic initiative? And most people who work in leader development or leadership, they think at the program level or maybe the course level. And we are way beyond that. You know, we we are thinking about institutional structures in higher education and how to coordinate mass change in them. That's a big freaking deal, man. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's... it's hard. And and it only it will only happen at scale. Yeah. But we're there with the Carnegie Initiative. We're there with with the measurement course. You know, we'll do 200 a year, probably of grad students that are going to go everywhere after they graduate. But but we need we need to do more. Yep. Uh, there are other organizations that focus at the program level. I mean, I'll call out two, the Association of Leadership Educators are great about, about uh, courses in leadership. And then the, the uh, international leadership association, the ILA oh, yeah. establish program standards. That's fine. That's their thing. And we endorse them and we think they're doing a great job That's not our thing. Yeah. You know, our, our thing is at, at strategic level. And we also think that the changes we're making in universities, businesses watching, they will learn. As we go, as we develop this in universities. And then they're going to make changes themselves because a lot of money is spent on leader development and a lot of it is wasted. Yep. You know, a lot of it is not producing. And businesses hate that. They hate to spend money and not produce, but the system is not favorable right now.
1: This whole podcast series started off with an interview with a friend of mine, a colleague named Dave Rush. And the episode was called I Have a Fear. And it was exactly that. All this stuff we're doing isn't necessarily moving the needle. So, how do we ensure that we are? And uh, I'm so thankful that you all are exploring, experimenting, building, thinking at this level, that systems level. How do we scale this shift? Because I think that's what it is. It's a big shift. And how we approach the work. Now, As we wind down, what are some things that you've been reading lately or listening to or streaming, something that's caught your eye? It could have to do with leadership. It doesn't have to do with leadership. But is there anything that's really caught your attention in recent
0: times? Well, you know, I mean, you'd have to be asleep to not recognize a movement towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and its effect on leaders and leadership. Hmm. And so books like Inclusify by Stephanie Johnson, who's a University of Colorado professor. Susan McKenty Brady has a book out, uh, several books, actually, that focus on that. Both these women are terrific leaders themselves. A little bit of a confession. I really don't read leadership books very much. Yeah. because, Because most of them are variations of hundreds that were written before. I learn more by by watching the world, you know, I learn more about watching our students and I learn more about measuring outcomes of things that we do, you know, in some ways I just don't have the time or the desire to to do that. Now I've I've endorsed quite a few leadership books lately, including books by dedicated and unquestionably capable uh, leadership authors like Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner, you know, I've endorsed a couple of their books and Jim Collins, I, you know, there, there are people who do write really good leadership books. Books have a hard time changing people.
1: Yeah.
0: But books contain ideas. And unless people move into practice, they're probably not going to learn anything. They may be inspired by the book. They may get some ideas by the book. But those are going to fall by the wayside when they're working every day or going to school every day or, or what have you. Yeah. So it's really tough for leadership books to make a difference, and I, you know, I've written a couple myself, so I'm not against book writing. I, I, I don't spend a lot of time with that.
1: Anything else outside of leadership, and it could have to do with anything that's caught your attention recently.
0: Well, I have a 13-week-old puppy that uh, is preventing me from getting sleep. <laughs> let talk about a leadership challenge. You know, the thing weighs 20 pounds and it's smarter than me. Um, <laughs> but uh, not, you know, I, I do. I do watch politics pretty carefully because it used to be a place where you could find good leaders. Hmm. Um, less so now. It's more about power than it is about leadership. Some of it concerns me. I can remember being a soldier, being an army officer in West Germany when the wall came down, the Berlin Wall.
1: Yeah.
0: I was at my battle positions in the Fulda Gap, you know, looking over into Czechoslovakia, and on the other side of that border there was a KGB captain named Vladimir Putin that was shredding documents and you know doing what people do when their government fails basically. And we have come full circle now to a point where a lot of people think he's okay. And that, you know, the threat to Ukraine is, is just fine. You know, why do we care about Ukraine? And that I focus on that a lot. That bothers me a lot because yeah. what's, you know, what's happening in Ukraine is the reason we fought world war two. Yeah. And so I, I do pay attention to that. I feel like, you know, a good leadership pra- leader development practitioner has to watch leaders all the time, whether they're business leaders, whether they're political leaders, religious leaders, There are things to learn from all of these people. And uh, so I I do spend a lot of time with my head in the media and I don't use one media source. I probably I read a half a dozen newspapers in the morning. You know, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Houston Chronicle, the New York Times, Chicago Tribune. I mean, I am in all of them. I, I try to have my reality tested by that. You know, I want to I want to be aware of the world I'm living in.
1: Well, it's it's really fascinating how a number of the different outlets frame the world. And in many cases, it's no longer uh, Walter Cronkite saying that's the way it is. There's many Walter Cronkites saying that's the way it is. And it can be confusing. And I think one of the only ways to combat that is to do what you're doing is to investigate and explore and be open to these different outlets to better understand the narratives to make sense. But that's confusing for the general public, I think. That's hard. That that takes effort, right? That's six papers
0: a day. That's that's effort. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I do read fast and I do pass over things that are, are irrelevant. Sure, sure. Things jump out at you. When the vice president of the United States makes a statement that that President Trump was wrong and a news outlet doesn't publicize that for two days. you can start to make assumptions about what the what the function of that news outlet is and, and how it works. So I, politics and business, you know these are the outcomes of leadership. These are where leaders matter. I do pay attention. Uh, you know I'm an independent. I'm not I don't belong to a political party. I, it's very common among army officers that you know pick sides in that way. Uh, and I like that. I mean, I like to be centered. I, th- I think it's a good good approach for, for leader developers to take.
1: It is so impressive, General Doctor. Should I call you Doctor General or General Doctor?
0: Tom works really <laughs> well.
1: Tom, it's incredibly impressive what you're building. Thanks for the good work that you're doing. Thanks for stopping by today. I'm very, very appreciative of your time and excited to not only share this story with the world, but share some of the resources that you're, you've developed, and I'll provide all kinds of links into the show notes. So keep up the great work. Keep thinking about that problem at scale. I love it. It's awesome. So much fun. Thank you, sir.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Okay, be well. What I enjoyed most about that conversation was the fact that Dr. Tom could really just top of mind, tell us their first principles, top of mind, share their point of view, and really clarify that what they are doing is evidence-based, and they're measuring their growth, their development. So that's number one. I just think that's wonderful. There's a design behind the intervention, and there's a perspective, and there's measurement So, that we know if we actually are moving the needle, or at least we have an indication. (laughs) I don't know that we ever know, quote unquote. So, that was number one. I just really, really appreciated that. And then, number two, I love the fact that they are actually actively doing the work, that they are investing the time and the resources in that perspective and engaging in that development in the context of these learners. I think that's just a fundamentally very cool design element. Spoke about this with Cindy McCauley, that we're in the context of the learner. So that passion is already embedded in the work and the ability to lead that leader identity in that context. There's value there from the beginning. So, sir, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for bringing your perspective to the podcast. Thank you for the good work that you do. Loved listening to some of those stories about your experiences at West Point, at Yale, and now door. And thank you for advancing how we think and how we practice leader development. Okay, everyone, as always, thank you so much for listening. As always, if you enjoy what you hear, share it with others. And as always, be well, take care. And thanks for all you do. Bye -bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro.
0: You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.